Eva Lane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm actually very excited because you're the first scientist I've been able to interview so far uh, that specializes in vertebrates. Interesting. Wonderful. Uh, what a yeah. privilege. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, so you are a herpetologist. And so what exactly is a herpetologist for somebody who doesn't know what that is? So despite what your uh, preconceived notions are, a herpetologist is somebody that studies reptiles and amphibians. So everything from frogs to snakes, lizards, crocodiles, newts, salamanders, and turtles. Oh, I didn't even, I didn't, I should have realized that it also included crocodiles. Now, there are no crocodiles in England, are there? There aren't any, no, not presently, unfortunately, but, you know, a few million years ago, uh, I, I think there were, I think there were fossils of them around from the Jurassic, but yeah. Uh, currently, there aren't any, no, uh, I, I wish there were, but it's one of those things that, you know, as a child, when you, you know, you're out exploring the wilderness and you watch, uh, you know, the National Geographic documentary and you're like oh yeah i wish i could see that in my local neighborhood and you never do uh that's the uh, you know the kind of mentality that i've got towards these animals obviously if crocodiles were here and they were introduced it would probably cause chaos for our natural ecosystems but uh you know a boy can always dream <laughs> exactly um so i want to actually deep dive into something that i know you're very familiar with and i'm probably going to mispronounce it but it's called chytrid i, I believe the, uh, the fungus yes Kitrid, yeah. There, so there I actually heard. Don't worry. Okay, okay, great. I actually heard about it because my partner pointed it out one time. We were visiting a pond and these frogs weren't moving very much. And so she was like, I think it, they might have some sort of parasite because she had heard about it probably in a documentary or a book. And so I wanted to jump in because to me, I find this overly fascinating and I know that you're a specialist in fungus and diseases. So why don't you tell me a little bit uh, what is chytrid and what okay. does it do? No, no, sure. So, so chytrid is, uh, you know, as somebody that, that has spent, you know, the past few years before moving on to reptiles studying amphibians, you know, it is my worst nightmare. Uh, it's a fungal pathogen which infects the skin of amphibians and causes uh, hyperkeratinization. And for amphibians such as frogs and salamanders, uh, their skin is their most vital organ. So, you know, they use it to, to breathe, they use it to uptake water, they use it to, you know, exchange electrolytes and, you know, a whole host of different functions. Obviously, in some species, they use it to secrete poisons and toxins. Uh, they use it for sexual display. You know, there's a whole host of functions of amphibian skin uh, that, you know, probably warrant their own podcast alone. Uh, and what Kitrid does is it disrupts these functions uh, it causes it to be become uh, a lot harder and less permeable than than it would be otherwise. And essentially, the the frogs, the newts, the salamanders, whatever amphibians are infected, unfortunately, usually die of cardiac arrest uh, following infection uh, because you know they they just can't continue function. They can't function the way they should do, and uh, yeah, they. Uh, they die that way. The, the different species, you know, die at, at different loads of, of the chytrid fungus to, to other species. You know, the neotropical species in South America tend to be more susceptible than those in the, you know, North America or in Europe. But uh, yes, there's lots of evidence to suggest that chytrid fungus has has at least been implemented in the decline of 
500 to 1,000 amphibian species and the extinction of potentially 200 or more. Wow. Have you seen, have you seen it actively in, um, in England? Uh, I haven't, no. So I, I've been swabbing amphibians for a few years now. And we've also, you know, we've taken this past native species, but also looking at non-native species as well. Uh, and, you know, everything that we've tested so far has come back negative. Obviously, that doesn't mean it's not here. You know, more larger landscape scale projects have shown that there are pockets of uh, chytrid around England, Wales and Scotland and other places in Great Britain. Uh, so, yes, it, it's here. Uh, and at the moment, it appears to only have a limited effect on on our native species, probably because, you know, they're more resilient to, to you know, fluctuations in temperature and pollution and everything else. Uh, so that probably helps them, you know, when it comes to disease. Uh, but, you know, with climate change, with ongoing habitat loss, you know, with smaller population sizes and, you know, the, everything that's predicted for the future, this element of disease uh, being present in populations may be uh, a significant driving force towards localised, if not national, extinctions, which is the scary bit. Okay. Yeah, I bet. I just want to interrupt uh, our conversation just really quickly here, just to tell our, our listeners that uh, Steve is in in the UK. I'm in Canada. So our connection is a little bit interesting this evening. There are a few words that perhaps we, we won't be able to make out properly, but I think we're getting the gist of it, which is that this fungus is a, a threat, uh, not just in, in, in the Southern hem- Hemisphere, but also in Great Britain. Uh, do you know anything about the uh, chytrid in North America, specifically in Canada? So, in in North America, it's been found in a few species. The, the The main one, which probably won't surprise anybody, is the American bullfrog. And uh, so, the the American bullfrog has you know been introduced to lots of areas outside of its natural range, uh, mainly for the production of, of you know frog legs for for food and culinary dishes. And because of that, because they're uh, asymptomatic carriers of chytrid, you know, they've been able to spread it to other populations of more susceptible and naive populations. Uh, and, and yes, this has caused uh, declines, uh, as you know, as well as the, the, those bullfrogs outcompeting the, you know, the other amphibian species, either directly or, or through predation. Uh, disease, you know, is the final nail in the coffin. Uh, and so, as well as the American bullfrog, there's a few other of, of the, the, you know, the, the green frogs that are also highly susceptible to infection, although they don't seem to be that affected by it, which means that they can then go on and spread the disease around their environment to uh, to species that are more vulnerable to infection. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the green frogs don't, you know, don't exhibit any levels of population decline or, or loss, whereas these more susceptible species do which is worrying uh, and is very reminiscent of what's going on at the moment with the current uh, COVID-19 crisis is that, you know, you've got these asymptomatic carriers going around uh, and potentially spreading disease to susceptible populations or, or uh, you know, uh, groups of people in the case of the pandemic uh, without any evidence of being able to, to track them unless, you know, you're testing every single one of them, which is both uh, painstakingly expensive and also, you know, labor intensive as well. Yeah, I bet. And so is chytrid in any way, shape or form dangerous to humans as well? It's not dangerous to humans whatsoever. No, thankfully, you know, it's one of those diseases that I doubt will ever, ever jump to to people. You know, amphibians are highly susceptible because of the levels of keratin in their skin. 
And as I said earlier, you know, it, it's their major organ. In our skin, we do have keratin, you know, but most of our keratin is in our fingernails and our hair. In our skin, we also have collagen and other proteins that, you know, also uh, play vital roles that, you know, you, you don't find those, those proteins in uh, amphibian skin. Uh, so, yes, they are highly susceptible, whereas, you know, uh, human skin, you know, laboratory studies have shown that the chytrid spores, uh, they die very quickly when in contact with uh, human skin uh, due to either, you know, the, the lack of a suitable, uh, you know, uh, area to, to bed down or, or just due to our, our microbiome, you know, it's a lot more or hostile to the, to the, uh, the fungus than, than amphibians. Now, I know that in humans, treating fungal infections can be pretty difficult and usually comes with a lot of side effects. How does it work in amphibians? Is there a way to treat a frog that's, that's got this, um, this fungus? There are some ways, but unfortunately, the issue is, is that they're not 100% guaranteed all the time in every different species. So there are some, some fungicidal agents that you can dilute down in, you know, into uh, different dilute quantities and, you know, place your frog or your salamander in uh, and treat them over the course of a few days or a few weeks. And, you know, this seems to work, you know, most of the time. But obviously doing that on a population scale, you know, over a continent it is, you know, impossible, particularly when the fungus itself can persist in the environment, even after you've cured the infection uh, in an individual, you know, there seems to be very limited immunity gained uh, by these individuals. And so they're, you know, liable to be reinfected uh, almost immediately after being placed back in the wild. Man, I'm so, so fascinated by this. And I'm really curious now because I'm wondering, is there a way to eradicate it or are, are they or are amphibians essentially at the mercy of this? So this is the interesting question. And, you know, the, the, the first thoughts of, you know, what chytrid was were, were first discussed in the 1989 World Congress of Herpetology held here in Canterbury. Uh, and. You know, amphibian biologists around the world were meeting for you know the first time to discuss the fact that you know they'd been out for years and years, and all these amphibian populations were nice and stable, and then they went back one year and they just suddenly disappeared. Uh, and it wasn't until 1998, so 22 years ago, that we discovered the amphibian chytrid fungus. Uh, and you know, despite that amount of time, you know, there's still so much about it we don't understand. Uh, and at the moment, it does seem like most populations are at the mercy of the fungus, although in some places, you know, because of the uh, the high rate of turnover in some amphibian species, you know, they are managing to adapt uh, and evolve immunity to uh, the fungus, but this isn't always the case. Uh, and unfortunately, it looks like that, you know, chytrid is going to be the cause of decline slash extinction of a whole host of different amphibians around the world for, you know, at least the next century, uh, because we have no way really to mitigate it in the wild, uh, apart from, you know, the spraying fungicide everywhere, which obviously isn't the best for the environment uh, because of the symbiotic relationship between fungi and plants and other animals and everything else. So it, it's a tough one. And, and obviously the removal of amphibians from the environment affects the whole of the food chain. As I'm sure you're aware and the listeners are aware, you know, frogs and newts, tend to play the numbers game you know they don't just have one two offspring like most mammals they lay thousands of eggs and each of those tadpoles you know is food for birds mammals reptiles other amphibians etc and if you remove that food source then unfortunately those predators are also going to suffer 
uh, and it has you know knock on effects all the way down the food chain uh, which can be traced back to uh, the reduction in frog populations yeah it seems like such a terrifying prospect i i i'm glad at least we know about it uh, i guess there's nothing really much that the average person can do about it can they Unfortunately, not no, uh, but depending where you are in the world, uh, if you suspect that a frog is sick, or at least an amphibian is sick, you know, there are different uh, recording schemes to be able to, you know, to record sick and dying wildlife. And obviously that can help alert people that are working in, you know, the disease sector, what's going on and where the spread of these diseases may be. Uh, and, you know, that is probably you know the best early warning system we have at the moment is trying to figure out how far spread these diseases are which species they're infecting uh, and where they're found uh, because you know chytrid isn't the only infectious disease that's affecting amphibians you know there's a whole host of them uh, which is you know the scary prospect is you know in the past 20 30 years you know we've found a whole host of these infectious diseases that are hitting amphibians uh, left right and center and unfortunately, you know, they are suffering the consequences, which is a shame, particularly to someone who loves, you know, going to a pond and seeing thousands of frogs having a fun time. Yeah, it's actually a great segue because my next question was about uh, the, there's a, apparently a parasite that causes frogs to grow extra legs. Yes. So this was uh, discovered in the US in the 60s, I believe. Uh, and it's the... The intermediate host of the the parasite is frogs, so it infects a snail first, then a frog, and then uh, you know a water bird such as the heron. And so the frogs eat the snails. The parasites enter the tadpoles or the the young frogs. They grow extra legs, and because of that, they're more liable to predation uh, by you know herons and other uh, you know bird bird predators that you find in wetlands. And then the parasite can enter those, those uh, birds and complete the life cycle. So yes, there's a uh, there's a great documentary and a great book on on this very subject. Uh, and I believe they're both titled uh, "The Plague of Frogs." Uh, and yeah, it, it's interesting to to you know just look at how the scientific discourse and the thought process of these people that were studying these frogs, you know, went because you know went from you know, looking at nuclear fallout and, you know, uh, environmental waste to, you know, parasites very quickly after, the, you know, everything else checked out to be pretty okay. But obviously, when it comes to those sorts of environmental contaminants, amphibians are quite susceptible uh, because, you know, they absorb everything through their skin. Uh, and yes, it's one of those things, I guess, if you were studying this for the first time, it must have been very daunting. But, you know, like with Kidrid, it's great to know uh, what's going on so we can try to do something in the future to mitigate it and you know thankfully uh you know we do know what's going on and and yeah it, it's one of those things that it still it still manages to freak people out from time to time and it, you know it's very natural but you know at least we have a handle of what's going on which helps us understand the whole natural process of, of everything there yeah it's amazing and and so the the birds consume the frogs with the extra legs now what happens to the bird you know so, so the bird, as far as I'm aware, is perfectly fine. So, you know, the 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 parasite, the parasitic worms use the stomachs of the birds as their place to breed and release their eggs, uh, which then, you know, end up back in the water in their feces, and then the snails eat them, and then the snails are eaten by the frogs, and that whole process continues. So the birds are unaffected 
in this whole process, it's just the frogs that are, uh, you know, more susceptible to uh, predation through the production of the, the extra legs, uh, which, yeah, it is quite an interesting uh, strategy when you think about parasites, you know, because usually they don't tend to to cause their hosts to grow extra limbs or, or anything like that. Yes, you know, like the cordyceps fungus, uh, as I'm sure you, some of you will have known or seen, with ants, they grow uh, these huge uh, spore-like uh, antennae after the ants grow into the top of it, climbs to the top of a tree or, you know, a long blade of grass and then releases its spores there. So there are, you know, some parasites that can affect the behaviour of their animals, uh, but not many that can change their anatomy, which I think, you know, is, is truly fascinating in itself. That is absolutely wild, actually. I'm, I'm, I've got shivers. Uh, Steve, why did you become so interested in this? I mean, now I get it, but I'm curious about you, your story. Why, why, why frogs? Why? Why specifically uh, fungus and pathogens? Uh, to be fair, I just never grew up, you know. I was always chasing frogs around, uh, you know, when I was a child, and I'm still doing it 20 years later. Uh, and it, it's one of those things that, you know, when you go through, you know, this whole level of professional development, uh, you know, you start to realise that the species that you love aren't going to be around forever, and there are threats affecting them. So, you know, I, I got involved with disease. Uh, because to me, that seemed like one of the biggest threats that I could help understand uh, with, you know, relation to the declines of amphibians in my local area. Uh, as it goes to the largest decline of amphibians worldwide is habitat loss, as it probably is for most species. Uh, but yeah, the, when I first got involved, you know, uh, in academia eight years ago, you know, the disease side of uh, amphibians was still relatively new. Uh, and during the course of my undergraduate degree, uh, the second amphibian chytrid fungus was discovered, the one that infects salamanders, uh, which has been given the, the shortened title of B-cell, but its scientific name is uh, Batrachochytrium salamandrivorans, or the devourer of mutes. Uh, and here in Europe, uh, in the Netherlands, in Belgium and Germany, uh, you know, it has caused huge declines in fly salamanders and other uh, other newt species. Thankfully, so far, it's absent from the US and Canada. Uh, but the worry is, is that, you know, it could easily spread there. Uh, and the Appalachian Mountains, which I'm, I'm not sure if many people will be aware of, are the salamander hotspot of the world. So, you know, if, if this new fungus that originated in Asia uh, spreads to the Appalachians, you know, it, it could be, you know, lights out for, you know, 150 or more species of salamanders. Uh, you know, the example is is the European fire salamander, and in the Netherlands, over the course of you know six years, their populations crashed by ninety nine point nine nine percent because of the introduction of this fungus. Uh, and again, like with BD, it eats their skin, it compromises their immune systems, and you know they they die of lethargy and uh, cardiac arrest. So yeah, the, the disease side of things, as much as they're scary. Uh, and you know they're, they're sort of the you know the the enemy from you know a, a really bad Doctor Who episode. Uh, you know they're also interesting to learn about how to combat. And I think you know it, it's that curiosity that you know despite all of the depressing outcomes and, and potentials, you know keeps me moving forward uh, because you know hopefully we'll be able to find a way to save you know the animals that I love from these diseases uh, and 
reverse these trends that we're seeing. It sounds like a beautiful uh, vocation for you. Um, you mentioned really quickly uh, that habitat loss is a major threat to amphibians. I remember doing an interview with a conservation biologist, uh, biologist, and his specialty was bees and pollinators. And so I asked him, uh, you know, if I buy a property, what's the best way for me to help them, you know, in terms of the, the, the habitat, of preserve, the preservation of their habitat? I'm going to ask you the same question. What's the best way, uh, if I move out into the countryside, for me to preserve the habitat in my yard? Uh, is it helpful to build perhaps a pond? Exactly, yes. Build a pond and also keep an area of, of long, rough grass somewhere. So, you know, there's lots of misconceptions about amphibians and, you know, the the correct one, you know, is that most people know that amphibians need, need ponds to breeding, which is great, but they don't spend their whole life or the whole year in a pond. You know, adults come to the ponds, at least in, you know, temperate climates, to breed in the spring and then leave shortly afterwards and will hunt around for insects, for earthworms, for other invertebrates in, in long grass somewhere. Uh, and then find somewhere to bed down for the winter and then you know in the summertime the the tadpoles will have metamorphosed into froglets and toadlets or tiny newts and salamanders and you know they'll be joining the adults so yes build a pond uh, but also uh, also leave an area of rough grass somewhere and if you are going to build a pond uh, please stock it with native vegetation you know that is appropriate to your location so that you know, there's no issues there with invasive species or anything, and so that the amphibians that do find it uh, can make good use of it. Uh, and so, yeah, obviously that will depend on uh, where you live, but you can usually find, you know, sort of handy guide to this stuff online or in your local garden centre or, you know, the general sorts of places that you find this kind of information. Is it okay for people to handle frogs? It's perfectly okay for people to handle frogs. Uh, although if you're going to... Uh, you know, wear gloves or make sure your hands are wet first. The issue uh, is, is that if you're if you're handling them uh, with dry hands, you, you, there is the potential that you can give them burns because uh, obviously you know we're we're a lot warmer than they are, uh, and also uh, you know there's the potential to spread disease between individuals as well. So you know it's best to try to to wear gloves at all times, but if you can't make sure your hands are at least wet so that, you know, you mitigate the effect uh, of the burns. But yeah, like I, I do lots of outreach with, with school groups and I always encourage children to, to handle these animals. You know, it's one of those things that because they move in such a weird way compared to everything else that they see in the environment, you know, they tend to, to, you know, scare people a little. Like when my family dog is completely terrified of frogs, you know, anything else, you know, he'll happily just sit there and look at, but frogs, you know, scare the daylights out of him. Uh, but yes, handle frogs, handle salamanders, but if you're going to do it, please wear gloves, make sure you all make sure your hands are moist and, you know, make sure it's under the supervision of an adult or somebody that knows what's going on, just in case, you know, things do go wrong. Uh, the last thing we want is somebody to accidentally squish a frog in their hands uh, whilst they're trying to, you know, admire their their beauty. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I grew up in in the countryside in northern Ontario, so you know, forests, lakes, and stuff like that. And I always grabbed frogs. I've always grabbed frogs without 
you know, making sure my hands were wet. So this is very good information. I'm definitely not going to handle the frog with a dry hand ever again. So thank you for that. No, no, no. Uh, it's one of those things that I, I did the very same thing. You know, I grew up in a in a suburban part of England. And yes, there were lots of wild spaces around me. But it's one of those things as you grow older and more wise in these things, you start to realize that, you know, the behaviors and the actions that you take or used to take, you know, could be creating detrimental effects. And now when I'm handling amphibians, you know, I'm always wearing gloves or at least if I'm working within the same population, uh, you know, my hands are always wet. Okay. Well, I mean, like I said, it's something that uh, now that I know, I can also tell my friends and family too, you know, it's one of those things, the information just spreads. Exactly, I, yeah. I have also, uh, I have a huge fascin fascination actually with toads. I find them just beautiful, even though a lot of people, you know, in, in fairy tales are considered very grotesque. Uh, there's all sorts of myths around them, which we know are not true. Like, you know, they give you warts, for example. At least I don't think it's true. Is it true? It's, it's not true at all, no. It, it's one of those okay. things that, you know, <laughs> I handled so many toads as a child that I should be covered in warts, but I've never had a single instance <laughs> of a wart. So, you know, I am evidence right there. Uh, but yes, they're... they're there are lots of myths about them, and I think some of them date back to the Middle Ages because, you know, obviously they were seen as familiars of witches, and, uh, you know, there's all sorts of, of tales in Shakespeare and, you know, other texts that, you know, relate toads and, and their, uh, their somewhat uh, ugliness to, you know, uh, Satanism, or at least, you know, the black magic side of things. And yes, uh, there is this whole misconception about them, which always try to you know to crush when i speak to children about them and other people uh you know toads play an important part in you know in the food system uh you know they hoover up a whole host of uh you know potentially uh, uh parasitic insects as well as ones that spread disease such as mosquitoes as do frogs uh and you know really you know they are our friends just because we have these preconceived notions about you know what they do and and you know uh how unimportant they are uh, you know, they can easily be turned around, you know, by by showing people just how important they are. And by having some hands-on experience, I find it always helps. For toads, what I've noticed about them is that a lot of times I see them in very dry environments, not like in a lake or in a pond. It, is that because they prefer the the warmth or the so, dryness? So with toads, yes. They're, they're, so you tend to find frogs, you know, basking uh, on the edges of ponds, or if not in the pond, soaking up the, the sunshine and the water at the same time. So, you know, they tend to be the people that are enjoying, you know, uh, the pool during the summer. And uh, the toads are the guys that are, you know, a little bit more apprehensive and trying to hide from the UV rays and just, you know, laying low. They're still enjoying the weather, but, you know, they're, they're you know, undercover or, you know, uh, a little bit further away from all of the action. And the reason being is that toads, uh, themselves are uh, they're, they're more resilient to, to desiccation to drying out and so they can tolerate those you know those conditions uh, and so you know I often find them uh, you know in log piles uh, and other bits of pieces you know when just trying to move up uh, you know rubbish and trash around the garden or you know when you're uh, doing some habitat work in the woodland and you're you know you're trying to build a habitat for for these guys and accidentally find out that you've disturbed one in a you know in a semi habitat uh, for them and yes so toads 
prefer the the drier uh but still damp and you know cool environments compared to frogs although when it comes to breeding they'll be in the ponds just as much as the frogs are but as soon as that breeding's over you know they'll be off and out and and you know seeking somewhere uh to shelter Okay, so other than those differences then in terms of uh, preference as to where they like to hide or, or be out in the sun, uh, what else is different between frogs and toads? So this is an interesting question, and it's one that I'm often asked. Uh, so it depends on what you define as a toad. So toads, you know, uh, scientifically belong to the family Bufonidae, which is the true toads, uh, so you know here here in here in the uk we have bufo bufo which is the common toad and epidele calamita which is the natajack toad uh, and you know those are two quintessential toad species uh in the us and canada you know there's a whole host of other species uh that used to belong to the bufo genus but have now been split up into you know different different genre uh and so the main differences between frogs and toads is that frogs have smooth skin and toads have bumpy skin. Toads also have a set of uh, bean-shaped glands behind their, their eyes on, on the back of their head slash necks where they produce their toxins uh, called paratoid glands. Uh, and so these are only in, in, in those true toads, uh, although in most languages there is no distinguish, you know, there is no distinguishing word between frogs and toads. And so, uh, yeah, throughout most of the inurans, which are frogs and toads, of which there's about 7,200 species currently recognized by science, uh, you can use the term frog or toad interchangeably, apart from those few species that are in the uh, Buffonid family. So it's, it's, it's a very complex question. It doesn't have a simple answer. Uh, but yes, if you want to distinguish a frog from a toad, uh, check, its, you know, check its skin. Is it warty? Is it smooth? Does it have these paratoid glands? Uh, and the other thing is that the toads tend to crawl, whereas frogs tend to hop. Uh, and so, yes, if if it gets a bit of speed going on it, you know, is it hopping across the lawn or is it, you know, just crawling slowly through the grass? Uh, and that can help you distinguish whether or not it's a frog or a toad. Thanks about that. Uh, Steve, I have a, a, an absurd question for you, but I have to ask just because I'm super curious. We were talking about our, our mutual French heritage before we started recording, and I was curious, would you ever eat a frog? Uh, I, I wouldn't know. Uh, and, you know, the, the same is when it comes to, uh, you know, crocodiles and, you know, other, uh, you know, reptiles or amphibians that are often seen on the menu. Uh, and there were two reasons for that. One, uh, I'm a vegetarian, you know, I, I believe you can't save animals and eat them at the same time. And the second thing is, is that, uh, is it, yeah, I, I don't think I could stomach eating an animal that I love so much, uh, without, you know, forcing it down myself and then, you know, possibly, uh, puking up afterwards. Uh, so yeah, I, I'd give it a miss, uh, and, you know, enjoy uh, a more traditional dish, uh, and, you know, a, a beer instead. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I kind of figured that would be the answer, but I figured I'd ask anyway. Uh, another creature that you seem to enjoy studying are, uh, is, is the snake, essentially. Um, so what is it in particular about snakes that you find absolutely fascinating? I, I think the, well, there's lots of crazy things that I find fascinating with snakes, but, you know, the the main one is that, you know, they're 
they're they're so diverse, uh, despite the fact they've all got the basic body plan of a head with you know uh, a long neck and body uh, and a short tail, and obviously you know they they vary in size massively. You know from you know uh, a few centimeters up to you know ten meters in length and everything in between. Uh, and you know they've colonized and you know uh, adapted to you know a whole host of environments from right into the Arctic Circle to you know tropical oceans to deserts to mountain ranges you know to marshlands so you know there are late there, there are snakes literally everywhere and you know that to me uh just just blows my mind you know particularly you know here here in england you don't tend to see many snakes unless you're looking in the right places they tend to tend to be quite shy they tend to be quite timid and when i tell people uh, that i'm studying snakes here in england uh you get a lot of confused looks because like there's no snakes in england i'm like yes there is you just have to look in the right place uh or at least know what you're looking for to begin with uh, and yes uh snakes are fun unfortunately there are there are you know a small fraction of them that are medically significant and you know can cause death so uh unless you know what you're doing don't handle snakes or pick them up uh unless you're you know 100 certain on the id if you're bitten by a venomous snake seek medical attention as soon as possible uh but yes thankfully that the species that i'm studying is non-venomous and the worst thing it's going to do is uh defecate all over you and pretend to be dead uh, <laughs> which you know is humorous uh, and you know it's wonderful for trying to collect fecal samples for dietary analysis uh but yeah it's tough to try to you know i'm a one-man band when it comes to all of my data collections so it's hard to try to collect everything and measure the snake and take photographs and swab it and everything whilst you know i've only got two hands to restrain it and, and do that all at the same time uh yeah i bet um i want to touch on something you just said though that that um, kind of astounded me there are snakes in the arctic or do you mean yes, underwater so, maybe so, so, so the, the, the only venomous snake species we have here in the UK is the, the northern adder, uh, Vipera baris. Uh, and yes, they're found way up into the Arctic Circle, uh, along with one of our lizard species, uh, Zootoka vivipara, the viviparous lizard. And both of these species give birth to live young. They incubate their eggs internally and then give birth to live young. Uh, the reason being is, you know, it's an adaptation to the cold. You know, if you're a reptile, why would you lay your eggs in the snow where they're going to freeze when you can, you know, bask in the open and incubate those young uh, until they're ready to ready to leave you and then, you know, go off and do their own thing? So, yes, uh, I'm not sure if there's any snakes uh, in, in the Arctic on, you know, on the Canadian side of things, but at least in Europe, uh, there are adders in the Arctic Circle, which is crazy. And, you know, whenever I tell people, it blows their mind, but... Uh, yes, Viperobarus has one of the largest distribution range of any species in the world. It's strange, it's right, it, you know, it's right across Asia, uh, through, you know, Russia, Asia, you know, all the way over to Japan. You know, it, it, it's got a huge range, uh, you know, adapted to a huge range of environments. But it wouldn't surprise me, it, you know, if in a few years' time, uh, because of that range, that the species is broken down into a, a number of different species. Uh, because, yeah, obviously some of them may have become adapted to uh, different conditions compared to, to some of the other locations, so much so that they can be regarded as a new species. Uh, but, yeah. Steve, do you know, do you know what these, um, these Arctic adders, what do they eat up there? So this is a very good question. Uh, they feed primarily on small mammals. 
So I can only assume that, you know, lemmings and, and mice and, and that kind of thing. Uh, hmm, so, yeah. Okay. Obviously. Wow, you know, and is it. Sorry. Well, I was going to, sorry, I was going to ask you what actually eats the snake after that. Uh, I think it depends. Uh, you know, here, here in England, it varies, you know, birds of prey tend to be, you know, a big predator as do uh, introduced pheasants for, you know, for, 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 for shooting, for sport. Uh, but, you know, foxes, cats, dogs, you know, all these sorts of animals tend to uh, predate on them as well. So I assume in the Arctic, you know, predators such as the Arctic fox and snowy owls and, you know, all those sorts of things opportunistically will take them as well. Uh, particularly as some of the adders in the Arctic Circle are melanistic, so they're completely black which obviously, if you're on a white background, uh, gives you a thermal advantage to, to collect uh, solar energy to warm up and to incubate your young. Uh, but yeah, that obviously makes them stand out like a sore thumb to predators, which may increase the risk of predation to visually orientated predators, such as owls and foxes. Yeah, I was going to say that's not a very smart adaptation, but like you said, they need it for, for collecting warmth. That I guess would make sense. Uh, the other thing that you study with snakes is snake fungal disease. Tell me about that. Okay, so this is an interesting topic. So recently, in the scientific literature, snake fungal disease has undergone a name change. It's now known as aphidiomycosis, uh, with you know mycosis denoting a fungal disease and aphidio being a Greek root word for snake. Hence, uh, aphidiophobia if you you know suffer from a fear of snakes. And here in Europe, very little is known about it. Uh, hopefully I can help fill in some of those gaps as I go throughout my my PhD. I've still got a few years left yet, so don't look at me at the moment for any answers. But uh, in the US, where the disease has been known about since 2009 and, and, and studied more, uh, yes, the, the situation seems to be similar to the chytrid fungus we discussed earlier, but on a much smaller localized scale. Only a, a few species seem to be, you know, susceptible uh, to infection and suffer subsequent death, uh, which is interesting. Uh, but we do know that infection changes the behavior uh, of infected snakes, which may lead to, you know, indirect mortality from infection through increased risk of predation uh, and other such factors. So, yeah, it, it's one of those emerging diseases that, you know, they tend, well, there's been a, a number over the past, you know, couple of decades, chytrid fungus, B-cell, white-nose syndrome in bats, aphidiomycosis, you know, the list just keeps going on and on and on. And I'm not sure if these diseases have been there, you know, most of the time and we've only just noticed them or if, you know, they are truly introduced. But I imagine it's a combination of, you know, two factors, you know, an increased alertness and awareness of fungal diseases means that, you know, when we're out and about looking at wildlife populations, uh, you know, if something looks a bit iffy, you know, we, we can then test those animals that are, that are infected or at least look sick to see what's going on. And then if a new, you know, new fungal pathogen is found there, then, you know, job done, we can start to study that. Uh, but at least with aphidiomycosis, there's some evidence to suggest that the infections here in Europe and those in the US are independent of one another uh, genetically. So it appears that there are at least, you know, two different strains of the fungus. So it may have been sitting dormant in, in the environment for God knows how long, uh, and has only just become, uh, you know, apparent 
due to our you know increased awareness of fungal pathogens or climate change or habitat loss or other stresses on snake populations that have made them more susceptible to infection uh compared to 10 15 years ago wow that's uh I don't know. You've you've uh, essentially made me both terrified for the for for the the health of the snakes and the frogs. I mean, we've been talking about all these diseases that are just, you know, taking over their population. Uh, is there any good news in terms of the health uh, of amphibians and snakes and and reptiles in general? Is there anything that's that you've seen that's that's kind of optimistic? I think there is there is some stuff that's optimistic, you know. I, I think the issue is when it comes to conservation, things tend to be quite depressing very quickly. Uh, and I'm not sure, you know, if you or any of the listeners have seen the new David Attenborough film, A Life in Our Planet. Uh, but you know, the whole story of that film pretty much sums up what it's like to work in conservation. Uh, you know, it, it gets quite depressing for a long time, but then there is some optimism when it comes to chytrid and amphibians. In, in you know. In the neotropics in South America, there is evidence to suggest that some species that declined in the 80s have, you know, gained some resistance and are bouncing back, which is great. Uh, despite the fact that the threat of chytrid fungus is still there, which you know it, it is, you know, something which uh, we all hoped would happen. You know, when it comes to you know these thousands and millions of frogs, you know disappearing you know you'd hope that at least one of them or at least a couple of them had some level of immunity that could then spread throughout the population and you know proliferate afterwards it appears that that's happening uh you know there are a whole host of different successful reintroduction programs of different amphibian and reptile species around the world going on you know by teams of, of you know very dedicated and hard-working volunteers and professionals uh and you know, at this moment in time, as far as I'm aware, there are more people working in reptile and amphibian conservation than any other time in the past. Uh, so, you know, there are lots of great young minds, uh, you know, trying to trying to crack, you know, these problems and, and find solutions for a whole host of, of different issues, you know, some that we haven't even, even covered yet, uh, as well as the disease stuff and habitat loss and, you know, trying to figure out how to translocate populations to save them from climate change or, you know, how to cryopreserve species for longevity should you need to, you know, uh, create clones or, you know, artificially inseminate a species to, to save it from extinction, etc. Uh, so, you yeah, know, it's, it's one of those things that, yes, conservation in terms of reptiles and amphibians is depressing, you know, particularly when you look at the disease side of things, because, you know, there isn't much we can do at the moment, you know, we're very, recently discovered these uh these pathogens uh but on the grand scheme of things you know i'm very optimistic because you know there are so many people trying to you know trying to find solutions and you know they're all working together as well which is a great thing you know there's there's not you know this this great rift where people are you know fighting to find a solution you know people are collaborating like they never did before you know uh and that to me is you know a sure sign of progress if i ever saw one yeah, there's a quite the movement right now too for uh, science communication. It's such a hot, hot topic right now. Is uh, scientists are are kind of learning the skills and also becoming interested in communicating about science with the public. Now, I I have done my research on you, and I do know that you are quite entrepreneurial as well, in the sense that you kind of 
it, it seems that you're doing this as a personal venture as well to kind of educate the public, to teach kids. You have a, a Patreon account. You have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, you have your own shop. Uh, you do all sorts of podcasts. Is this something that is a, you know, essentially a, a personal venture? It is, yes. So I, I, I you know... This to me is, you know, a personal venture is a hobby, you know, to try to get people involved and infused about the natural world, whether it be amphibians, mammals, birds, insects, whatever, you know, I, I focus primarily on reptiles and amphibians because, you know, that is where my passion lies. But, you know, I, I try to get people involved and infused wherever I can, you know, everybody's different, you know, I, I you know, at the moment, you know, I'm still feeding the the curiosity and the passion and my inner six-year-old of, you know, learning about Tyrannosaurus Rex and, you know, everything else, you know, I haven't haven't lost that or let go of that. And so uh, here in, in England, at least, you know, a lot of six and seven-year-old kids are pretty clued up when it comes to the natural world, you know, that they know so much more than, you know, many adults do. It, it's surprising, you know, it seriously is. Uh, but somewhere along along the, you know, the journey to becoming an adult, they lose that spark. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to keep that spark uh, ignited, you know, by throwing extra kindling and, and, you know, logs onto the fire to make sure that these people, you know, can, can follow those passions because they will be the conservationists of the future. Uh, and to me, you know, that's the most important thing. So, yes, everything that I do, uh, you know, is it, it, voluntary. You know, I'm trying to get people involved because, you know, no matter how hard us as scientists work, we can't do things alone. We need, you know, the support and the cooperation of the general public. We need them to understand what's going on. We need to understand them how they can help. And we need them to understand uh, how their daily life is impacting the species that we're trying to protect and preserve. Uh, and hopefully, you know, we can work together as a massive unit to, you know, to create this, you know, this super network of people that are working all around the globe to to help protect and preserve every aspect of the natural world, uh, whether it be frogs or bats or, you know, shrimps or whales or whatever. And, you know, that, that is my ultimate goal is trying to get people connected with the natural world so that they, they'll actually fight for it when the time comes. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying, because uh, you're saying you never grew up. And I actually can really, really relate to that. And one of the things I found, um, now I do a microscopic live stream on Twitch. And one of the things that I found is that grownups are the ones who are watching it. People under, uh, sorry, people over 40. And what I find interesting about that is that there is um, a yearning to connect with their youth, with that sense of exploration. Now, I consider you, uh, you know, getting to know you for the past hour or so, as kind of like the Peter Pan, perhaps, of academia. Do you find, uh, is there a struggle with keeping that enthusiasm in a milieu that tends to be a bit stuffy sometimes? Uh, it can be difficult, yes. I, I think, you know, this year has been a challenge for us all. Uh, and, you know, certainly, you know, in terms of uh, you know, academic challenges, but also personal ones as well. And, you know, there are times when, you know, uh, I, I, I thought about, you know, just, you know, holding up my hands and saying, you know, maybe this isn't the right thing. And then, you know, uh, two seconds later, I, you know, I completely disagree with myself and keep on going. Uh, th there is the issue, you know, uh, of growing up, but I, I think, 
you know, I'm always finding new ways to satisfy my inner curiosity. You know, I read a lot. You know, at the moment I'm reading uh, a book on dinosaurs uh, because why not? Uh, and, you know, I, I, you know, it, it's one of those things that there's so much to learn about life, uh, whether it be, you know, our own biology, our physiology, how we're related to other species, how those species interplay with other species, you know, previous life on Earth, uh, the future of life on Earth. You know, there are so many you know, so many different ways you can look at things just from the angle alone without even going into astronomy or chemistry or physics or whatever, that, you know, uh, whenever I, you know, I feel a little bit, you know, disconnected from the world, you know, I just take a step back, look at the, you know, the bigger picture and think, okay, how can I get back to where I want to be as opposed to being where I am now? Uh, and yeah, just tend to, to listen to some chill music, read a book, and then, yeah, uh, find my way back where I want to be. You mentioned books and, and being a, an avid book reader. I visited your blog and I really, really love it. And what I enjoy about you, Steve, is that you, uh, you do book reviews, which is fantastic. Yeah. You also reviewed uh, uh, David Attenborough's latest uh, film as well. Uh, what are, let's say, your top three favorite books, whether it be science or history, Ooh. whatever? What are your top three? This is, uh, this is a tough one. Uh, I think... I figured. <laughs> my top three books so one of them would be uh uh life in cold blood by richard kerridge so it, it's a book about uh richard's early life growing up here in england you know spending the 70s and the 60s uh you know chasing reptiles and amphibians as a, as a young boy around southern england uh and despite the fact you know i'm a few decades uh younger than him uh you know i still had you know similar experiences growing up and so you know i can connect with that on so many levels and hopefully people that you know uh that you know are in the same field as i you know fulfilled for that same connection uh the the second book that i i think is just you know mind-blowing is the unexpected truth about animals by uh, lucy cook uh and you know this explores a whole host of different species of which we have, you know, incorrect preconceived notions about and, you know, sets those straight, whether that, you know, whether they stem from incorrect information collected by uh, by early European explorers to the New World or, you know, whether that's just through myths and, and the legends that have been, you know, passed down through the ages. And then uh, my third book would be uh, The Secret Network of Nature by uh, Peter Volobin. Uh, which is part of a trilogy of books, uh, which looks at how different species are, uh, you know, they're connected to one another in an ecosystem and how they all interplay. And, you know, reading that book, uh, you know, as an ecologist, didn't really, uh, you know, teach me anything new, but it did reinforce what, you know, what I've seen, what I've learned and everything else. And obviously, if you're not from that kind of background, then, you know, you're going to be able to, to appreciate nature in a whole different light and i think that's the most important thing with some of these books is that yes uh they're written by scientists but they're written in a very accessible format which helps connect people with the natural world uh and you know do some of the hard work uh that i'm trying to do uh without even trying you know you, you, you read these books uh and you know you can easily storm through them in a day you know or maybe less i'm not sure how fast you know everybody reads but, uh, but yeah, they're highly enjoyable uh, and, you know, it's that kind of book where you get to the end and you wish there was more 
uh, but unfortunately there isn't. Is that one of your aspira aspirations? To, to write a book? Yeah, to write a book. Uh, I, I do like writing, uh, and, and yeah, you know, I, I'd love to, to write a book at, at some point. I've got some great stories to share at the moment, but I think uh, at the, the current moment in time, you know, there's a great number of, you know, science communicators out there uh, that, you know, the, the, the landscape is a little bit hostile for, you know, a potential newcomer. So, uh, you know, I'm happy to gain some more experience and wait until the right opportunity comes as opposed to, you know, jumping right in the deep end and trying to compete with everybody else uh, when they're doing a far greater job than I could do at this moment in time. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I guess that my last question would be, you're currently completing your, your PhD, your doctorate. Uh, what's your dream job or your dream career? Is it doing research? Is it being a professor? Is it being a science communicator? What, what's your dream job? So at this moment in time, it's, it's hard to say what opportunities will come my way because of Brexit, COVID and everything else. But what I'd like to do, you know, is carry on working in research. You know, there's nothing I love more than being out in the pouring rain, you know, counting frogs and toads or spending hot summer days out chasing snakes and lizards. Uh, you know, I, I love being outside. You know, I love collecting that raw data and then trying to figure out what it all means in, you know, in the grand scheme of things later on. So that's where... I want to remain, uh, whether that is part of an academic institution or an NGO or, you know, and some sort of other organization. I'm not sure yet, but, you know, we'll just, we'll just have to wait to see what the future brings. I've got two years until I finish yet. So there's, you know, there's bound to be opportunities come my way. Uh, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and, you know, I, I can't wait to, to carry on doing what I love. Well, Steve, I'm going to quote you something from Peter Pan, which is, all you need is trust and a little bit of pixie dust. So on that note, thank you so much for joining me uh, this evening. It's been just a wonderful experience speaking with you. You have a wealth of knowledge. And I mean, we didn't even touch on some of the, the topics I wanted to, to talk about, which were turtles, geckos, and lizards, and salamanders, and all that stuff. So maybe, uh, you know, always next like, time. I'd love to. I was going to say, yeah, I would love to have you on the show again because we can, we can definitely delve into those topics. So thanks for coming on, on the program. You're very welcome. <laughs>